The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. So this morning we're continuing in our summer series, Where We Stand. Our goal in this series, as we've said before, is to introduce you to and help you to appreciate the profound, biblically grounded resource we have at our disposal in the statement of faith that we share with all the churches in our denomination, Sovereign Grace Churches. Today we'll be focusing on the fourth section of that statement, creation, providence, and man. On the Friday before last, I drove with my parents on uh, drove my parents to the north coast on the Edward Siaga Highway that begins so close to where we meet. As we ascended the hills above the rear Cobra, just after the exit by angels, we entered the mist. At first, it really only obs- obscured our visibility a little bit. We could still see fairly far in front of us. But as we descended the hill into Linstead, we realized that we were in a sizable fog bank. By then, most drivers, of course, had put on their hazard lights, which you do because the visibility is so low. And really, the truth is, we could not easily see the cars that were directly in front of us. It was that much fog. Now, if you've driven that route before early in the morning, you'd know that it's not unusual for that valley to be covered by fog. But it wasn't that early in the morning. And and this summer, of course, has been hot, so I was surprised by how thick the fog was at that particular moment. Eventually, you know, we, we, we drive along the road through the valley and then we start to climb the hill uh, as you, you get up and, and you're heading into St. Anne. And, you know, eventually we clear the fog. And I wasn't driving at the time, so I was able to look back at the route we had taken. And, I mean, the whole valley was just blanketed by this thick, fluffy, dense bank of cloud. The kind of as substantial as anything you'd see. Um, we're okay? Okay, it's getting a little feedbacky thing. All right. Yeah, as substantial as anything you would see up in the sky when you're looking at a cloud. I mean, it was, actually, it was completely impossible to see the road that we had just been on or any other of the, of the valley's features. Now, it feels to me as if we are journeying through an in- increasingly dense cultural fog when it comes to questions of how anything came to exist and what it means to be human. Some of the questions we face have been asked for centuries, but others not even for the last 20 years. Was the universe created or did all this happen by chance? Is the physical world all that there is? Are we foolish to believe in a God whose existence cannot be proven scientifically? And if there is a God, is that God interested in and involved in the details of daily life? Or more distant and disconnected from the things that concern us? To those significant questions about the nature of the universe and God, you can add a whole set of questions about us. Are human beings simply highly evolved animals? Or is there something different about us? Is there any real reason to reject ideas like racism? Or is it simply a matter of political power and social consensus? Do unborn babies have any intrinsic value or should they only be protected if they are wanted? Does biology determine whether somebody is a boy or a girl? Or is gender identity a social construct which is personally determined and fluid? Is marriage an outdated, man-made institution that should either be discarded or radically updated to include same-sex couples? 
Or why should it even be restricted to two persons? And even if one embraces traditional marriage, how should a husband and wife relate to each other? And with all that said, what of singleness? What does it mean to be human? And what is the path that leads to human flourishing? This is a fog of crucial questions we find ourselves in, moving through our lives at high speed. Now, it's one thing to drive through a fog-covered valley on a well-paved road that you know will get you to a good destination. It's another thing to be traveling through such territory when new routes are constantly being cut and are crisscrossing each other. Some roads are being paved even as we are be being invited to travel on them, and the engineers building these new and better ways don't yet know where the road is leading. It's no wonder many, particularly younger persons, find themselves perplexed about which way to go, like they're driving blind through fog. And those of us who are a bit older may be accustomed to kind of just working with it, and uh, you know, we work with what we've been given, and we don't ask too many questions. But without good answers, we find that we're una unable to help anyone around us who is disoriented and who is directionless. So one of the reasons I am so grateful for our statement of faith as we look at creation, providence, and man is that it marks out an old, trustworthy road that leads through the dense fog that we're in. This road has been built brick by brick with biblical truths that have held the weight of the precious lives of people over centuries. This one section that, that I'm kind of working with and expanding on today references over 70 scripture passages. Its aim is to trace the hard edges of biblical teaching with an acute awareness of our cultural moment. In one sermon, I won't even attempt to comment on every statement. That's why we continue to encourage you guys to take the time to read the statement of faith on your own and to look up some of the scriptures that it links to. You can access it via our website, gracefarm.church. It's under the About section, and the subsection is Beliefs. That will link you to the statement of faith. So what I want to do this morning is to gather some of these biblical truths reflected in our statement of faith and help you to begin to see the ways in which they offer a reliable path through the fog of our times. We'll organize these truths under three themes. Intentionality, dignity, and complementarity. So, let's begin with the theme, intentionality. This particular message, I must confess, is tremendously tempting for me. There's so much biblical truth in our statement of faith uh, that we highlight that I would love to just rejoice in. I mean, there are individual phrases that I'm like, oh, that's so good. I wish I could just expound on that. It touches on so many different areas of thought, several of which I've read, thought about, and admitted they argued about over many years. Faith and science, worldviews and philosophy, apologetics and environmental conservation, purpose and providence. So intentionality was a very important word for me as I prepared. Because uh, it helped me not to be like a kid in a candy store, kind of rushing from aisle to aisle, grabbing stuff and just having a good time. So uh, what I'm trying to do is focus a bit more and not, and not attempt to say all that can be said. Still, uh, this is a slightly longer message. We'll, we'll finish on time, but just bracing you. <laughs> so here's what I want to focus your attention on under this particular theme. So this is a statement. God created, sustains, and governs the entire universe with intentionality. Let me say it again. God created, sustains, and governs the entire universe with intentionality. Every one of those verbs is important. Created, sustains, governs. And I'm intentionally attaching the noun intentionality to every one of them. 
Now, that's a massive claim with wide-ranging implications. Firstly, I think it would be fair to say that most Jamaicans believe that God make everything. But less believe that God keep things running. And even less believe that God run things. Many Christians whom I will gladly embrace as my brothers and sisters through faith in Christ do not believe that to be the case. They believe that God runs some things. But here's the thing that's relevant for us. It's one thing to hold these truths on paper, as we do as a local church. It's another matter altogether to live as if they're true. That's kind of what we were processing together in worship as Sean was just leading us. He was challenging us just in terms of, all right, we're saying these things, but how much are they affecting our emotions? How much are they affecting our behavior? When things seem to just, just kind of blow up, when your life seems to blow up, when circumstances go in directions you did not expect, what happens in your heart in that moment? So a part of why it's good to lean into these truths is we want to continue to grow in actually believing them in practice. So I've already preached a sermon focused on these truths as a part of our Who We Are series. Uh, So if you've never been taught these things from the scriptures, I'd recommend that sermon. The title was, We Are Reformed, God Over All. Today, what I want to do is briefly show you from the scriptures why I've chosen each of these verbs. So let's head first to the letter to the Hebrews. We're going to project all these scriptures because I'm going to be all over the place this morning. uh, And there are a lot of quotes. So you don't have to jump all over in your Bibles. You can follow on the screen. So Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created the universe intentionally by his spoken word. And that same powerful word, and by that same powerful word, sorry, he intentionally sustains the created order. That's what we learn in Hebrews 1, 3a. Speaking of Jesus, the living word, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and, and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So what that means is that the universe doesn't hold itself together. It's not simply that God set up laws and everything is going and He's kicking back and doing nothing. Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of His power. It's challenging... Somebody's saying amen. Yeah. That's Bailey? Come on, Bailey. Get this crowd going. Come on. So, it's challenging to briefly illustrate God's rule over everything in the universe. As I said, I did a whole sermon on this. That's not because it's an obscure idea in the Bible. It's because it's actually all over the Bible, often taught through stories. What I can offer you this morning, though, is the two poles of it, established in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So, when you read Proverbs like that, it's important to understand how they're seeking to communicate. Uh, In the ancient Near Eastern world, a king was the most powerful human being there was. Basically, if you were in a king's kingdom, you couldn't challenge him. Nobody could challenge his decisions. So he did exactly what he wanted within his sphere of influence. But God directs even the heart of the king, which means that he directs everyone else's heart also. The lot represents the smallest, most random event, literally the rolling of, of of the dice. Yet his outcome is governed by God. That means there are no random events. 
from the decisions made by the most powerful people on earth to the outcome of the flip of a coin, God governs it all with intentionality. This is how we aim to capture these truths in our statement of faith. So I'm going to read a section of it for you. Let me get this thing behaving. In the beginning, the triune God freely created out of nothing the universe and everything in it by the word of his power. As sovereign Lord, he is present with his creation to sustain all things, governing all creatures and govern all creatures, sorry, and direct all circumstances in accord with his holy and loving will. You might, if you were reading that, the slide before, there was an ellipsis there, those three dots in the middle of the quotation. That was me omitting some really good stuff that we can't possibly talk about right now. So please, go look it up for yourself. Now, the Olympics finished yesterday with the marathon. That was the last event. I was thinking about how competition works. And, you know, when, whenever athletes in any sport are going up against each other, one of the things they tend to do is assess the competition to see what they might bring to the table that their competitors cannot. When I look at the competing claims of worldviews and theologies that line up alongside the doctrine that we see in the scriptures, what we bring to the table that is, uh, that, that's unique, I believe, uh, is the good news of God's intentionality in creating, sustaining, and governing the universe. Naturalism or materialism, a view widely held in the Western world, in academic thought and in popular thought, basically says, according to the author Greg, Greg Kukul, that matter is all that exists. The only things that are real are physical things in motion governed by natural law. That worldview confines the teaching of the Bible that we are going through right now to the realm of feelings, which may be true in a personal sense. It emphasizes verifiable facts, which it claims are true for everyone. But for the sake of time, rather than critiquing the assumptions of naturalism, which go way beyond the scope of anything science is able to prove, I want to point out where the road leads. Naturalism has implications that, frankly, are depressing. The well-known atheist Richard Dawkins wrote this, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, I listened to that, but I actually think, can think about it and see why that would seem like good news to some people. You see, it saves you from having to make sense of suffering. Or to hold on to meaning in madness when everything's falling apart around you. Or to fight for, right against, for what's right against tremendous odds. Chance means the universe is purposeless and our lives are meaningless. But we have better news revealed to us by God in his word. Because God was intentional in creating the universe, it has meaning. Because he sustains it intentionally, we can know that he does so according to his loving will and plan. Because he governs all things intentionally, we can know that our lives have meaning and even evil is not random and purposeless. I want to highlight two particular applications of this. Endurance and enjoyment. I'm going to speak to endurance very briefly. 
God's intentionality in creation and providence gives us faith to endure life's difficulties, comfort in life's sufferings, and hope for a glorious future. We can trust the one who works even through hardship and evil. As Greg Kukul puts it, the universe is managed by someone. We are not abandoned to the fates or to the blind and brutal forces of the natural world. Instead, we have a powerful king carefully watching over us and who is there for us. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was when I was preaching on forgiveness, uh, Peter Abrikian made a, a wisecrack at, my, at yet another emphasis on a theology of suffering. And you know, when I think about it, I realize we do emphasize that a lot. Um, and it is important. But on reflection, I'm wondering whether we're getting the balance right. You see, I realize I don't emphasize a theology of enjoyment as much. I think I live with it, but I don't necessarily talk about it, or I haven't talked about it as much yet from this platform. So let's begin to fix that. You see, a theology of enjoyment most definitely grows from the doctrine of creation. Over and over again, in many places, the scriptures invite us to rejoice in and receive God's good gifts in creation. The Apostle Paul, echoing the language of Genesis, says this in 1 Timothy 4, 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if, if it is received with thanksgiving. I've been helped in my contemplation of this by Tim Shorey. Tim was the pastor I served under during my internship. And recently he's been doing a fair bit of writing and blogging. He wrote a blog a few weeks ago uh, entitled A Biblical Theology of Pleasure. He says, A faithful life requires a robust theology of pleasure to accompany a realistic theology of suffering and sacrifice. Those who serve well and suffer much need to know God created pleasure and wants them to enjoy it. A biblically rooted life embraces this truth. God blesses us to make us glad. Christianity affirms the goodness of God's world and, en and encourages us to enjoy it. Isn't it amazing how different that is from Dawkins? Tim goes on. Long ago I put it like this. I am resolved to believe that pleasure is good and to enjoy all the pleasure I can in this life, as God provides, within God's boundaries, with gratitude for His bounty, with generosity towards those who have less, in celebration of my Father's goodness, all while loving the giver more than the gift. That's a good resolution to adopt. Now, we need to zoom in from the intentionality of God in creating, sustaining, and governing the universe to His intentionality in creating human beings. And the theme we'll use to explore this is dignity. So that's our second word, dignity. Let's give our attention to some familiar verses in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Those verses describe God's intention in creating human beings. We are the pinnacle of his creation. While there are biological similarities between us and animals, and while all of creation reflects God's glory, 
only human beings were made in the image of God. Anthony Hockmup briefly explains, the concept of man as the image and likeness of God tells us that man as he was created was to mirror God and to represent God. We were made to mirror God in some respects, to reflect what he's like in some aspects of his nature and character. One aspect that is important for this message is that we are relational creatures. God created us for a relationship with him and with each other. We were made also to represent God. We see that in verse 28. And the picture here is like an ambassador who is in another country representing you know, the country they're coming from. Or a, a statue of a king which is the likeness of the king put up to say, this is my territory, this is where I rule. The God who created and governs Everything gave humanity the responsibility to have dominion over the earth. Now, dominion is not the same as domination. If we are God's representatives, in our dominion we should display what God is like. His wisdom, his kindness, his creativity, his attention to detail, etc. Now, even in that brief treatment of what it means to be made in the image of God, this much should be clear to you. God created humanity in his own image with intrinsic dignity. And that's the summative thought under this theme. God created humanity in his own image with intrinsic dignity. Our statement of faith expounds on this truth and points to some important implications of it. I want to read most of this section and then highlight a couple of things and then focus attention on some, some of its many applications. God created man, male and female, in his own image as the crown of creation and the object of his special care. God directly created Adam from the dust of the earth and Eve from Adam's side as the parents of the entire human race. God gave them dominion over all creation to fill, subdue, and steward the earth as his representatives. All human beings are likewise created in the image of God. Despite the effects of the fall on sinful humanity, all people remain God's image bearers, capable of fellowship with him and possessing intrinsic dignity and value at every stage of life from conception to death. The biblical account teaches us that we are all descended from the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. Now, we celebrated Independence Day this past Friday. I need, I need the help of one of the younger children. Maybe let's go under six first. Uh, can somebody under six tell me Jamaica's motto? Nobody under six? Somebody under seven? I know this is going to be easy for the older kids. I see people leaning in already who are older than that. All right, all right, go for it. Go for it, older ones. Oh, there's some... Uh, somebody say it loud. Out of many, one people. That motto celebrates our multiracial roots as a nation. Well, the biblical account could be summarized with a different motto. Out of one, many people. To say, to say that, as the Apostle Paul does in Acts 17, is not to discount Eve's dignity and indispensability. It's to acknowledge that how God created was to form Adam from dust and then to form Eve from Adam's rib. The point is, the entire human race existing in the beautiful diversity of different ethnicities is one family. Here's another important truth to highlight. Even though we descended into sin and the, and the image of God has been disfigured, it has not been destroyed. Okay, so we're going to look at a few implications of this truth. Now, there are so many diverse areas of thought and behavior uh, that the inherent dignity of human beings affects. 
It entirely undercuts the notion of racism and it challenges the abortion culture. It exposes pornography and sex trafficking as the commoditization of the human body. It insists on the intrinsic value of those who are old and dependent or suffering with debilitation, with the debilitation of serious illness. It even challenges how we speak when people bad drive us or the things we say on social media. Here's one particular idea that's close to home right now. Over the past few months, we have been acutely aware of our, our challenges in Jamaica with gender-based violence. Um, like, like many others, I'm heartbroken by the prevalence of men hurting or killing women, women in different situations for different reasons. It really is a deeply perplexing problem that surely has some roots in our culture and in the state of our families. But we need to ask ourselves a question. Why shouldn't men who in many situations have the physical power to dominate women, use violence as a means of control and revenge. Why shouldn't they do it? No, you can't simply say because most people think it's wrong. A moral consensus based on nothing but popular sentiment is a very weak persuader and very dangerous territory to live in. If we were working with men in a community and trying to teach them a better way, what could we say to them? Well, we could teach them that men and women were made in the image of God and that gives us value and dignity. That means that women are not, for instance, to be objectified sexually. We could teach them that when they use their strength to protect women rather than oppress them, they reflect and represent God in one way that he wants them to. They would need examples and, and these truths would need to be applied to daily conversations and interactions. And we could teach them the rest of the story, how the fall helps us to understand why it's so hard for us to treat each other with dignity. And the story of redemption in Jesus, who paid for our sins and is renewing our character according to the image of God. Another area that I think it would be profitable for us to explore, perhaps in depth at some point, maybe not in this forum but another, is how the dignity of human beings affects how we ought to think about our bodies. We live in a culture where body shaming, body worship, and body neglect seem to coexist in relative comfort. By God's design, we are embodied creatures. I think the neglect of care for our bodies, which can be a product of poor theology, like thinking, well, we're getting new bodies anyway, so why should I bother exercise? You know, uh, is a stewardship issue that we need to continue, uh, that, that we need to consider together. We men in particular can be very complacent in this area, just valuing comfort over stewarding our bodies well. On the other hand, sometimes our interest in our bodies goes beyond reasonable care for our health into our preoccupation with our appearance. Yeah, somebody's agreeing there. I, I know you don't have that problem yet, girl, come on. You see, when you think about it, often what we're chasing is a particular ideal that we've internalized, shaped by the culture's ideals. It's fair to say that women feel this pressure much more than men do. A couple of weeks ago, the blogger and author Anne Voskamp wrote a post to her teenage daughter on the occasion of her birthday to arm her for her battle for godly self-image. I was very taken by the post, and I shared it with a, a number of people. In it, she is resolute and militant. Here's what she says. Media votes you on or votes you off as if a woman's worth is a popularity contest instead of being permanently won by function of being made in the image and likeness of God. Please hear me, girl. The world has enough women who know how to do their hair. It needs women who know how to do hard and holy things. 
We need more women who'd rather be beautifully sacrificial than perfectly artificial. Yeah, she was not pulling punches. How much is your joy and confidence attached to your physical appearance? To what extent is your contentment conditioned by the mirror or the scale rather than by being made in the image of God? Do you regularly battle discontentment with your facial features or your weight or your body shape or your height or your hair type or your skin tone or shade? Are we despising the variety that God built into creation as an expression of his many splendid excellencies in favor of ideals that are processed, surgically enhanced, airbrushed and filtered? Now what's interesting is that many of us as Christians, one of our go-to passages when we are arguing against abortion is, is, is in Psalm 139. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But do we see its implications for how we think about our own bodies? Sam Albury, an author I strongly recommend to you guys, he's doing some really great work. He recently released a, a book entitled, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. In the first chapter, he discusses some of the implications of Psalm 139. Our distinctive physical individuality is intended. We have been made by the ultimate artisan. Our God has produced billions of human bodies, but we are not mass-produced. We each have been handcrafted with infinite care. This means that you have the body God meant for you to have, even when not everything about it is wonderful. For those of us who are deeply unhappy with our body and even resentful of it, the path to a healthier response needs to begin with thanking God. Hard though it may be for us to understand, God meant for us to have our particular body. Your body is a gift. Let's move forward then from dignity and zoom in even more on one aspect of our creation in the image of God. God made them male and female. So let's look for our last theme. Let's look at complementarity. Let's look again at Genesis 1 and give our attention to an important detail. So look at verse 27 one more time. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to emphasize something about the nature of humanity, a truth that we've already applied in considering gender-based violence. Here's how we put it in our statement of faith. Men and women are both made in the image of God and are equal before him in dignity and worth. In God's design, men and women are equal in dignity, yet different from each other in some aspects of our constitution. Our, our equality is not established through competition or interchangeability, demonstrating that anything you can do, I can do better. It is God-given, an aspect of our shared dignity. That's something we need to emphasize, particularly because because our fall into sin damaged the relationship between men and women. Just as the curse meant that work, which is good, has become hard and frustrating, it meant male-female relationships, which are good, have become harsh and contentious. This, this is especially seen in the struggle we have in marriage. But it's not exclusive to that domain. We were designed for partnership, but we have descended into one-upmanship. But we need to go further in recognizing the implications of what the Bible teaches, beginning here in Genesis. Gender, as designated by God by our biological sex, is a part of God's good creation. The differences between us are good. Gender is now a contested term. 
Uh, when we looked at sexuality in our Set Apart series last year, I took the time to explain how the term gender has changed around the very new idea that we have a gender identity, an internal sense of self which can be different from our biological reality. I also took some time to build a biblical understanding of gender. If you weren't here for that, or if you want to refresh your memory of that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon again. Here's the main biblical truth that I want to communicate under this theme. God designed us as men and women with complementarity for his glory and for our good. He designed us as men and women with complementarity for his glory and for our own good. Uh, I've been trying to coin this, so this is the best thing I've come up with so far. Uh, the image of God comes in two versions, male and female, with endless variations of ethnicity and body type, as we've already noted, and personality and giftings and so on and so forth. All of this is fundamental to our identity as individuals and to our God-given purpose and to our flourishing as humanity. Here's how we express this at length in our statement of faith, starting with the sentence I already quoted. Men and women are both made in the image of God and are equal before him in dignity and worth. Gender, designated by God through our biological sex, is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition, but is essential to our identity as male and female. Although the fall distorts and damages God's design for gender and its, its expression, these remain part of the beauty of God's created order. Men and women reflect and represent God in distinct and complementary ways. And these differences are to be honored and celebrated in all dimensions of life. Now, that summarizes some really important biblical truths that are most definitely contested in the public square these days. This is one area where the cultural fog seems to have suddenly and dramatically become more dense and disorienting in the last several years. Since the fall, our desires have been at odds with God's design. There has been war between versions, wrestling in our relationships as men and women, and war against versions, wrestling against the way God intended men and women to relate, particularly in marriage. And now, in Western culture in particular, we're wrestling against the reality of being made by God as men and women. Surely now, more than ever, we need the help of our Creator to navigate this fog of complex questions and confusing desires. How is the biblical idea of complementarity helpful to us. In the first place, complementarity is integral to how God meant for us to image him. Now, we've been accustomed to thinking, to thinking of individuals, whether male or female, as being made in the image of God. And that certainly is true. But there's also a fundamental sense in which we as men and women image God more fully together. And here we're not talking specifically about marriage. It definitely applies to marriage, but we don't want to limit our thinking to that space. We're talking about what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God. One of the ways in which we mirror God together is that we were made to live in fellowship with each other, reflecting the fact that God does not exist as a solitary being, but in the eternal fellowship as in, but, sorry, but in eternal fellowship as a triunity. Uh, Sean preached about this a few weeks ago. Uh, as individuals, we can reflect aspects of God's character, but we can only reflect the fellowship that God has within himself, a fellowship which is fundamental to God's nature, together as male and female. 
Sam Albury illustrates this by inviting his reader to imagine a town or a city populated by men only. He says, many of us would suspect that a community like this would become dysfunctional in a variety of ways. We sense that each sex is able to moder moderate something in the other sex and add something to it. We need each other. By God's design, there's something about our differences that complements and enriches each other. This means that God did not simply create two distinct versions of the image of God meant to be independent of each other. He created two versions of the image of God who come together to display God more fully than either are able to do on their own. So, if all of this is not specifically about marriage, where is this complementarity to be expressed? Most definitely here in the local church. You see, we are not a loosely connected group of people. We are God's household. We are his body. We are his family. Rebecca McLaughlin reminds us, single people are vital to the church family, which is the primary family unit in Christian terms and should experience deep love and fellowship with other believers. Where church culture inhibits this by overemphasizing marriage and parenting, Christians need to fight for culture change and embody the biblical reality that the local church is truly their family. Now the truth is, I read that and, and just had to confess that overemphasizing marriage and parenting is a real temptation we face uh, because those areas naturally dominate the lives of those of us who are married and are parenting. So we need your help, singles, to recognize when we are doing that. You see, this church is your family. It's where God has called you to live as a man or woman shaped in his image. Complementarity helps us to recognize that the differences between men and women are not to be denied or despised. And I'll pause right here. You see, we have a way of making passing comments to each other. Yo, woman chat too much, you know. You know that kind of thing? Or, yo, why, why are these men so competitive? You know? And some of the passing comments we make actually despise our differences. So, Complementarity helps us not to do that uh, or to flatten the differences, which is a tendency now. You know, we're, we're heading towards gender neutrality and the world around us tells us, no, no, there's really no difference between men and women. But instead, to celebrate and nurture these differences as an expression of God's glory. So, if your child asks you the question, what does it mean to be a man? Or what does it mean to be a woman? How do you answer them? You see, those are questions we need to be able to answer as believers. Despite the way the fall has distorted and damaged our understanding of manhood and womanhood, despite the fact that the church has not been immune to such damage and distortion, we need to seek to understand, teach, and live in the good of our distinct callings to manhood and womanhood. No, that's most certainly a difficult task. Rebecca McLaughlin, again, offers us a very pertinent caution. Christians must resist defining manhood and womanhood according to unbiblical gender stereotypes. The Bible calls men and women to distinct roles in some contexts, but our gender stereotypes are not prescribed by Scripture. Like paleontologists sifting through the dirt, we must excavate what the Bible actually says while dusting off the cultural dross. That's the work that we must do together as a local church. We must obey God's commands and learn how we are to be shaped by the patterns that we see in Scripture while discarding the broken expressions within our culture without rejecting the good expressions which by God's common grace reflect Him. Shoo, that's a lot of work. Now there's much more that could be said here but I want to point out one more thing about complementarity and apply it. 
Complementarity is not just for now, but will exist in the new creation. So in our, in our series through the Gospel of Mark that we've paused for the summer, we're right on the cusp of this passage in Mark 12, 25. Jesus teaches that in this passage that in the world to come, we will no longer marry or be married. We know that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, and the picture will cease to be when the reality that ultimate marriage has come. But the scriptures are clear. We will continue to be individuals with our memories, with our relational histories, and gender after the resurrection. That's a part of the joy of the resurrection, in fact. We will be reunited with our loved ones in Christ, and we will still be ourselves, and they will still be themselves. Only we'll all be perfect. This means that the differences between men and women will exist only more gloriously and perfectly for all eternity. I think that what we've looked at today can be of encouragement, particularly to those of you who struggle with gender identity issues and with same-sex attraction. We are so grateful for uh, those in our midst who have shared. Some of you have shared your struggles with others in, in our church. Some of you have shared your struggles with us as pastors. God's intentionality in, in creating you means that your journey and all its unique difficulties is not a matter of chance, but was according to His purpose. It may even be that you are uniquely positioned to empathize with others who struggle in similar ways and to point them to Christ even as you follow Him. It doesn't diminish your dignity because you have been made in the image of God. And even if your struggle never goes away in this life, in the life to come, you, you will still be you. You will be you, but without confusion or temptation or pain, perfected as the man or woman God has made you to be. And it is our honor to walk with you for this leg of the journey and continue to help you to pursue Jesus until we see his face. So let me wrap up. God acted with intentionality in creating the cosmos. And he continues to be intentional in sustaining and caring for the whole creation. Directing all circumstances according to his holy and loving will. He made human beings in his own image. Bestowing on us intrinsic dignity. Elevating us above all the rest of creation in nobility and in responsibility. He made us for a relationship with him and each other. And he made us male and female, equal yet beautifully different, with complementarity that, that is meant to enrich our lives and reflect our creator. Intentionality, dignity, complementarity. Those are just three of the rich themes embedded in our summary of, of the Bible's teaching on creation, providence, and man. It's amazing to recognize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created us, took on flesh, becoming a part of his own creation, showing us what it means to be fully human and to live in dependence on the loving care of God, his Father. He has walked the road ahead of us, and he's walking with us now as we follow him. These days, to follow him in believing these truths about God and ourselves, to share them with others, is increasingly seen as stupid and bigoted and harmful. It's shameful in the eyes of the world. But 1 John 2.28 exhorts us, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. One day, the return of the sun will dissipate the fog of our faith, faithless science and cultural confusion, and every human being will see their maker and themselves clearly. I desperately do not want you to be ashamed on that day when he comes to judge us. 
If you abide in Him, if you live in relationship with Him, according to His Word, among His people, you will not be ashamed when the fog clears and we will all stand before Him. So let's look diligently to God's Word for answers to the questions we have and, and the ones we're wrestling through with those we love. Let's tell others who struggle with the twists and turns of their lives of our God who governs all for His glory and for the good of His people. Let's point those who are lost in all the cultural confusion to the reliable road leading to joy and flourishing that we are learning to walk with greater and greater confidence, though we stumble sometimes. And as we do so, let's remember that He supplies the discernment, wisdom, and love that we need each day to follow Him and to call others to do the same. So let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.